Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, turn, in, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been camped out in this chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's interesting, we talked about this the first week, but love is the, Jesus says love is the most important thing in the world. And there is no definitive definition, like a sentence, right? given in the Bible, but there are descriptions of it, there are illustrations of it, and most importantly, there is a, a picture of love in flesh and body uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, one of those descriptions, or a list of descriptions, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what many people call the love chapter, right? And in it, we're told what love is, what it is not, uh, and why it is important. And we've kind of just been slowing down. We'll be in this chapter for maybe a couple months looking at each one of these descriptions. We looked last week at patience and kindness, uh, and now we're gonna move on into the next one. But let's just for the, the, the sake of context start in verse one. I'll read all the way to our word in verse four. We'll stop there, we'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord has to say to us through his word. Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Let's stop right there. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and ask for the fullness of God to be poured out upon his church today. We've been studying for months and months this picture of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And now as we move into what you, Jesus said, loving our neighbor as ourself, we pray that you would just, in, your, in that kind and patient way that you do, just begin to chip away things that are antithetical to love. Carve away the rough edges. Remove or rearrange furniture in the hearts of our uh, uh, in the space of our hearts and, and replace those things that ought not be there with the, the pure love of the Father. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul prayed, you would pour the love of the Father abroad into our hearts today, that we would experience it for ourselves, how deeply loved we are in Christ Jesus, but also, Lord, that we'd be able to share it with one another, with our neighbor, with the world. As we dive into this little sentence, we pray that you would open up our hearts to understand and to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Love does not envy. That's what we're going to camp out on for the next few minutes, and it is a doozy. I think everybody in this room kind of has an idea of what envy is. It's almost like I don't need to talk about it at all, but I'm going to do it because I'm a preacher, so... 
But instead of giving you just some technical definition of envy, which nobody really cares about anybody, uh, anyway, let me just give you an example. Let's see if it resonates with you, okay? This is a story that I love, kind of, uh, as told by uh, an author by the name of uh, Mark Mason. And he writes this, <clears throat> an example of envy. It was 1962, and there was a buzz around an up-and-coming band from Liverpool, England. This band had funny haircuts and an even funnier name, but their music was undeniably good. And the record industry was finally taking notice. There was John, the lead singer and songwriter, Paul, the boyish-faced uh, romantic bass player, George, the rebellious lead guitar player, and then there was the drummer. He was considered the best looking of the bunch. The girls all went wild for him and his, it was his face that began to appear in the magazines first. He was the most professional member of the group too. He didn't do drugs, he had a steady girlfriend. There were even a few people in suits and ties who thought that he should be the face of the band, not John or Paul. His name was Pete Best. And in 1962, after landing their first record contract, the other three members of the Beatles quietly got together and asked their manager, Brian Epstein, to fire him. Epstein agonized over the decision. He liked Pete, so he put it off, hoping the other three guys would change their minds. They didn't. Months later, a mere three days before the recording of, uh, their, of their first recording began, Epstein finally called Best to his office. There the manager unceremoniously told Pete to get out and to find another band. He gave no reasons, no explanation, no condolences, just told Pete that the other guys wanted him out of the group, so best of luck. As a replacement, the band brought in some oddball named Ringo Starr. Ringo was older and had a big funny nose, Ringo agreed to get the same ugly haircut as John, Paul, and George and insisted on writing songs about octopuses and submarines. The other guy said, sure, why not? Within six months of Pete Best's firing, Beatlemania had erupted, making John, Paul, George, and Pete, uh, excuse me, Ringo, arguably four of the most famous faces on the entire planet. Mark, uh, the author, goes on to say, as you would expect, Mark understandably fell into a deep depression and spent a lot of time doing, and I quote, what any Englishman will do if you give him a reason to, drink. The rest of the 60s were not kind to Pete Best. By 1965, he had sued two of the Beatles for slander, and all of his other musical projects had failed horribly. In 1968, he attempted suicide only to be talked out of it by his mother. His life was a wreck. That is a picture of what envy looks like and will do to you. Not just in the life of the drummer Pete Best, but also in his bandmates who presumably could not handle him being a poster child for the band. If that resonates with you, then let's continue on together. Envy is different than what we might refer to as jealousy in this sense. Because some of us, maybe you're, you're, throwing, uh, you're thinking of both of those terms, envy and jealousy. 
What we just saw right there is not jealousy, but envy. Here's the difference. Jealousy is the feeling of anger when something or someone is competing for something or someone in your life. It really has to do with something that is presumably yours already, right? It's feeling threatened. Like a classic case is like your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend, someone's looking at them, you're like, hey, don't mess around with my person, you know? It's something that you feel is already yours. Or maybe it's a job promotion or uh, someone up and coming in your, in, your, uh, in your career industry that's maybe uh, impeding upon your sphere of influence. Jealousy has to do with something you already have. That's why there can be good types of jealousy. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 tells us, and this is God speaking, I am, uh, I am God, I am a jealous God. God can experience a righteous form of jealousy, so can we. And in that, in that case, he's jealous over his people. He's saying, I don't want you to, to follow after false gods that aren't even real. You're mine. That is a righteous form of jealousy. That generally has to do with something that you already have or perceive to have. Envy has to do with something that you don't have or that you perceive to lack. Envy is a sense of discontentment over something that you perceive to lack. This is what we saw in the example of Pete Best decades ago. It's also something that has been happening in this little fledgling but exciting up-and-coming church in Corinth. Uh, As I explained at the beginning, this section here that we're going through, uh, verse 4 through 8, has all to do with uh, little descriptives of of love. What love is, what it's not, and what we can do about it. And the first two are positive, right? Love is patient, love is kind. The next round of descriptions are going to be negative. Here's what it's not. Love is not envious. Love does not boast. It's not arrogant or rude, so on and so forth. Uh, one author writes that the, the, the next seven verbs are what love is not, and five out of those seven verbs are straight out of the Corinthian file. They're actual things that are going on in the church. These aren't things that Paul just poetically tried to pull out of his vocabulary. They're real things that the church in Corinth struggles with, and we could argue that every church probably struggles with uh, since then. I want to show you an example of this. In your Bibles, turn back to chapter 3. Keep your thumb in a 13 if you want. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, we see jealousy and, and envy pop up right here. And <clears throat> this, is a, uh, this is in a, a situation where Paul is addressing a lot of divisiveness in the church. And I'm just going to read what he says, and I'll, I'll give a little brief explanation after. But he says this, hey, I, brothers, I could, not, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Stop right there. Whenever Paul speaks about the flesh, I brought this up a few times, right? He's not just speaking about your skin, uh, although it could probably include that. The flesh is shorthand in Paul's vernacular for those things that drive and motivate us that are not rooted in Christ. So, namely, uh, what you have, what you can do, and what others think about you. That's kind of an easy shorthand way of thinking of the flesh. That which drives you from one of those three things, what you you can do, what you have, 
what others think about you. He says, you are still locked up into those things. You're infants, metaphorically speaking. You're infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. And he's saying, hey, God has so much in store for your church he has so much depth for you to, to kind of peer over and to dive into, but you're not ready to go there. Your, your spirituality is stunted because you're still being driven by these fleshly orientations and motivations, which, one, uh, which he gives an example of one of those. He says in the next line, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a, a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Okay, you kind of get a, an idea of maybe what's going on here. In that, in that uh, context, there's a bunch of different groups of Christians gathering, and they're gathering around these leaders. One is Paul, one is Apollos, so on and so forth. And they're kind of, they're kind of turning into these, these clicky environments, like, yeah, we have it together. We follow this guy, or we follow this person, or we're in this group. And Paul is saying, you're being driven by envy, or specifically jealousy. But this, this isn't the kind of godly jealousy that someone, uh, that, that's driven for somebody else's good, or for God's glorious reputation, or from a place of love. It's from competition, it seems like. So we might even be able to pull out of this that, that Paul is pinpointing under this an, a, a, some type of envious motivation for these retorts that, that the church is giving to one another. Uh, maybe a modern day example specifically of this is uh, in Santa Barbara, like, hey, I go to Calvary Chapel, you know, or I go to Reality Santa Barbara, or I go to uh, Community Church, or I go to Ocean Hills, or I go to IVC, in, in that sense of like divisive, competitive spirit. Now that's boasting. We'll talk about that next week when Paul gets to it. I want to talk about the feeling that you get when you're on the opposite end of that boast. I go, I'm with Apollos. I'm with, I'm with Paul. I'm with this group. And granted, Paul is speaking to a church, talking about church gatherings. You can make your own application. Well, I do parenting this way. Well, I do schooling this way. I uh, handle... Uh, this situation this way, or I have these personal preferences. Do you know the feeling that you get when you hear stuff like that? It's that sense that there's something in me that's lacking. And I want you to take just, just a few seconds and think, what is it in your life that makes you feel like the grass is greener on the other side? Just think about that for yourself. Where in your life is the grass greener on the other side? Paul says, whatever that thing is that is driving us to do what we do, it's not a small thing, but we are actually being controlled by our sinful nature, he says in 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, his argument in chapter 3 is that envy will keep you from growing deeper in spiritual maturity with Christ. 
It is one of the obstacles that will stunt your growth. A question we might be asking or should be asking at this point, because we all have that thing, or maybe you don't. Maybe it'll pop up later, and I hope you remember this sermon when it comes. But we all, we all have some of those things that we run into. It's not abnormal. It's just broken human experience. I wish I, I wish I had what they had. I wish I could do what they do. I wish that they thought of me like they think of that person. When those things flood our minds, Paul says that's a really big deal and that will actually distort and stagnate your walk with Christ. The question we should be asking is why do we think that, right? This is the, this is the task of emotional and spiritual health. It's not just trying not to feel certain things, but asking our hearts the question, why do we feel the way that we feel? Inviting God into those moments of envy. We're not confessing that all the feelings that we feel are right and good, but they're true. And we want to invite God into our mess and say, God, why do I envy? I think that as you, I want to give you a few examples of this, but you look through the, the scriptures as the Bible talks about envy and its stronghold on the human heart you see that most often it seems to come from a position or a perception of lack. We envy because we think that we lack something that is important, as opposed to coming from a standpoint of overflow. This is the difference between someone who is in Christ and who is not finding themselves in Christ. It's the difference between lack and overflow. I want to give you an example of this. In Matthew 27, verse 18, Pilate is holding Jesus uh, uh, at court and he's interrogating him and he wants to let him free but he's feeling the pressure of the people who want to crucify him and as a, as a last ditch effort he brings to the front this man by the name of uh, Barabbas. Uh, Barab- uh, Barabbas, excuse me. Barabbas is a, a traitor to the cause, he's an insurrectionist, he's a murderer and he's bringing him before the people saying, hey, I'll give you an option. I'll either release uh, Barabbas or I'll release this guy Jesus. And then it says in Matthew 27 verse 18 that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the people had delivered Jesus up. They delivered him up out of envy. You want to know why the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't care about his miracles, about his perfect life, about his overflow of love in his heart, about how the fact that he healed the sick and ministered to the poor and everything that he said came with authority? I'll tell you, envy. Envy will stop the flow of life going into your soul at, uh, at every corner. But then another gospel writer kind of drills deeper into that motivation of envy in the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders. In John 12, verse 19, the Pharisees, we actually get this picture of a conversation between them, and it says the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing by Jesus. Look, the world has gone after him. They're reasoning to one another, hey, this guy isn't doing anything good for us. He's, uh, we're gaining nothing by him. This is the core tenet of envy, at least in the heart of the Pharisees. There was a perceived sense of lack. There was a perceived sense of lack as opposed to abundance or overflow. 
And that was driving everything that they did so deeply and so uh, 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 terminally ill were they in this that they missed Jesus entirely. The best thing that's ever happened to them. Paul, in a conversation with his uh, protege, Timothy, referred to that, that desire as an unhealthy craving. I want to read you this very long passage um, and then give it a, a little explanation here. But in 1 Timothy 6, he says to Timothy about this other guy uh, that he, was, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food, if we have clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, unhealthy craving, right? Not money, money is not bad, nor are belongings bad. An unhealthy craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How's that? That was kind of a long sentence. I want to take some of those things that I underlined and just make a, a, a succinct sentence uh, to, to prove a point. Paul is essentially, if we were to paraphrase this, saying he has an unhealthy craving out of which produces envy whereby that person is imagining that the way that they live, including their spirituality, will get something that they think that they lack. They're driven by a sense of lack. But those who are driven by a sense of lack fall into a snare and actually ruin and destroy themselves. It is through that craving, something that I don't have that I desperately need to have, that I see someone else have, that drives people to pierce themselves with many pangs and actually wander away from the faith. You see that? Uh, of course, he brings up a, a number of different symptoms, but envy is one of them. Envy comes from discontentment, a sense of unthankfulness and a lack of gratitude. That no matter how good I have it, or no matter what this looks like right here, the grass is greener, the people are better, the situations are nicer, and I need to have that, and I don't. It's being driven by that unhealthy craving of the flesh. If only I can do what they can do. If only I had what they have. If only I was as liked as much as they were liked. That, Paul cautions, isn't just a cute little vice that we all share on occasion. It is a harmful snare of ruin and destruction. One of the ways that envy ruins and destroys that, that posture of lack is by, by ruining your soul. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy will make your body rot. It will bring you down. It might even make you sick. We see that... Uh, 
in the example of Pete Best just being plunged into depression and into a state of uh, despair. And a, a quick note, depression is not inherently sinful. Uh, you have to look no farther than David in Psalm 42 and 43, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, uh, including some heroes of the faith like Charles Spurgeon, John of the Cross, Mother Teresa. Uh, depression is not in itself inherently sinful. It's a symptom, we could probably say, of something else that's going on. Like all things that we feel deeply, it is a siren of something else God is trying to get us to pay attention to. But we see in Pete Best something that he was driven by that he desperately needed that others had that plunged him into a state of intense grief. In this case, we see that envy drives him mad, but who here can, who here can blame him? If I had a chance to be in the Beatles and I got lost out because of my three bandmates squeezed me out, I'd be... I would not handle it as well as he handled it. I, I can't blame him. Uh, and the truth is, envy is so powerful that I, I don't think, probably few of us in this building have lost out on a caliber uh, of influence and wealth and power as Pete did uh, in a situation like that. But how many of us lose sleep over the things that we envy? We don't need a, a Beatles situation in order to feel the dramatic and destructive power of envy, right? Am I the only person in the building who's lost sleep because of somebody else? Has anyone lost sleep? Has any, uh, have you ever uh, uh, woke up in the morning and discovered that you have no joy, even though you're reading the Bible and praying every day and going to church? Any of you self-medicate? Are any of you depressed, struggle with depression? Are any of you just find yourself just being busy for busyness sake? Now, can any of you in those situations trace it back, if you were to be honest with yourself in a time of solitude and reflection, trace it back to a situation where you didn't get what you thought you wanted or deserved? Not all of those situations are going to be traced back to envy, but are some of them? Some of you resonate with that? How powerful is the destructive force of wanting something that you don't have? Paul was not messing around. For some of you, it's ruining some of your lives right now, and it's destroying your soul. You might be in this theater right now, hearing all of my words and not remembering any of it because you are thinking about that one person or that one thing. And... Envy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't, it's not, uh, it's not, envy is not by its nature content. So it's not content with you either. It moves out of your life and destroys everybody around you. Envy is the great destroyer of communities and churches. That, pot, that sense uh, and posture of lack you'll find over time makes you defensive and not generous. Why? Because you're hoarding. 
Therefore, it makes it very difficult to love other people. Why? Because other people are the enemy. They're the ones who have what you should deserve. They're the ones who are affluent. They're the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who are getting all the stuff that you're supposed to have. Why then would I share anything with those, 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 those people? Envy destroys our ability to love one another in a couple ways. Probably more than a couple. I just want to bring up two. One, by a lack of margin. Remember margin? In our series on Messy Church, how Jesus practiced this all the time, had room for margin, and as a result of that, had a healthy spirituality, a spontaneous lifestyle, and room for people and for God. You might say, well, how does envy relate to margin? Well, envy is what is driving many Santa Barbarans to live a specific and particular lifestyle. I need a four-bedroom house. I need 15 hobbies. I need two Teslas, because, you know, the environment. I need a garage for those Teslas. I need a Tibetan Mastiff. I need four luxury gym memberships. I need to frequently eat out all the time. I need to buy stuff, and I need a daily taste in the nightlife. Fill in the blanks, whatever it is for you. And why do we do that? I know why I feel that pressure. It's because I live in a town where that is the status symbol. And so I'm driven to have things that other people have that I feel like I need to have. Now that's cool if you can afford those things, but some of us, a lot of us maybe can't, and yet we still try in order to attain the status that we don't have, that is envy. And because of that envy, many, some, not all, but some of us find ourselves busy, no margin. Now, I'm not talking about those of you that are busy with no margin just because you're trying to put food on the table, you know, or because of poverty or any of those other real means. I'm talking about this. This isn't everyone, but this is some of us. Your desire for a lifestyle that you don't have has driven you marginless, and you wonder why you have no community, why you have no deep, meaningful relationships, why you don't have time for God, let alone other people. It's because envy has sucked your soul dry and your relationships too. And therein lies the irony, right? The sinful defensive mechanism of envy within all of us that promises us more, more, more has actually depleted our resources and left us with less, less, less than we started off. The second thing is perhaps a reaction from that lack of margin, maybe you you blow through that, you find some time to cultivate relationships, and you try everything you can, relationships are huge in Santa Barbara, you make a few friends, and once you do, you lock onto those things with all your worth. You might have been trying hard to meet new people, but once you break into some new friendships, maybe you find that you don't wanna expend the effort anymore to meet new people. You're operating again from a place of lack, not overflow. Little by little, you find yourself looking inward at the few people that you're with and not outward at people who used to be just like you. All of a sudden, a click is born. Envy is poisonous to communities. 
And envy isn't new to us. It actually has deep, abiding roots in the city of Santa Barbara. It was in the mid-1700s when Santa Barbara was starting to form as an up-and-coming, fledgling little coastal town that Santa Barbarans uh, started to discover that they didn't have some of the things that some of the surrounding big cities in California had like them. They looked over at the East Coast and said, we need to be like cities like New York and Chicago who have kind of that modern industrial uh, element. They have railroads, they have working harbors, they have industry, they have all of this stuff. We don't have any of that. We don't have a working harbor, 1700s. We don't have a working harbor. We don't have a railroad. Nobody cares about us. We're isolated. Gail Baker, the uh, historian, writes that out of that sense of lack, they were driven actually into uh, some unethical things like smuggling and other forms of crime. It's not just that, but the polarization between the rich and the poor that's been going on for centuries, deep roots of envy in our city going back centuries. So when you wake up in the morning and that thing drives you, even before you've had a chance to drink your first cup of coffee and that thing is on your mind and you, ke- and you go to bed at night and that thing is on your mind, know that there's something huge going on in the world around you. That this is not just some petty vice. This is a result of the destructiveness of sin and the devil in the world today. And it shows its ugly head in a lot of different ways, but one of those is a subtle thing, one that maybe we are tempted at times to look over. It is a powerful force of envy. We were meant for more than that. We were meant for love. We were meant to open our hearts not only to God, but to each other. We were meant to work Not to keep up with the Joneses, but to work from a place of rest and margin and creativity and purpose and God-given fulfillment and love. And yet, some of us just want to make it, make, uh, we just want to keep up with the other person. Some of us, maybe, maybe you've, you've made it. Maybe you've surpassed the Joneses. You've gained the world. But if you were to be honest, maybe you would say, I'm slowly starting to lose my soul. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse four. Interestingly enough, written by one of the richest people in Israel's history who had it all together until he didn't. Writes to his son and says, I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, Solomon, the guy who did it all, had it all, knew it all, says to his son in his old age, I got all of this because I was envious, or I saw this happening because people were envious, and I'll tell you what, son, it won't make you happy. Even if you get it all, it won't make you happy. The problem with envy and its drive from a place of lack. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter seven, verse 21, 23, that it comes from within. Out of the heart of men and women come evil thoughts like envy. 
All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In other words, it's not other people's affluence that is my problem. It's not other people being blessed by God that's my problem. It's not the shade of green on the other side of the fence that's my problem. Jesus says, I'm the problem. My heart is the problem. And it's a bigger problem than we sometimes think. Paul would say in Galatians, the works of the flesh, one of them is envy and jealousy. And he goes on to say, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is the byproduct of a different kingdom. Now, I want to be careful here. Even Christians struggle with things like this. It's not saying we must immediately wake up perfect as believers. What Paul is saying is, what does the fruit of your life look like? He goes on to say, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. What is the fruit of your heart and your life? You might find that you're saying all the right things and believing all the right things and doing all the right things, but you are not changed on the inside by the love of God. Perhaps you're even enslaved to things like envy. Well, Paul and Jesus and many others would say in scriptures that you need to be saved, not from other things, other people. You need to be saved from yourself and your limited resources and your limited strength and your limited abilities. And you need to be saved and brought to the infinite resources of God's relentless love by which you will only find satisfaction, fulfillment, and true freedom and liberation. And it is through our union with God by faith in Jesus that we can be freed from a posture of lack and envy and freed to a posture of overflow. Even if you are the most financially poor person in the room, you could be the most spiritually rich. In fact, wasn't it the Apostle James who said God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? has nothing to do with what the Joneses have. It has to do with what you are willing to receive from your heavenly father. What are you willing to receive from him today? You are not made to live from a posture of lack. You are made to live from a posture of overflow. And by nature, that overflow comes from God and not us. We are by nature lacking I love what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now this isn't TBN here, okay? He's not saying that Jesus is a millionaire, and if you believe in him, he'll make you a millionaire too. He might make you a millionaire, and he might not. What he's talking about here is the wealth and inheritance from heaven that every believer has in Christ. The abundant life that Jesus promised. The easy yoke that Jesus promised. The rivers of living water that Jesus promised. That is all yours. That is yours free of charge. How many of us will walk through life leaving the richest resources that humanity has ever known or tasted, untapped, going to our deathbeds, wondering what else was there. You don't have to do that. Even if you're 99, ready to go right now, or 120, ready to go right now, infinite blessings are still waiting at your doorstep in Jesus Christ.
That's why Peter would erupt in worship. Speaking about our inheritance, he would say, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can steal it from you. Everything that you have in Jesus. It's why Paul would pray, not only thanking God for this inheritance, but praying for a a deeper realization to come upon the church for what they have right now in the present. He would say, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. And then he would go on to say, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. To know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray that you would know. You already have it. I just want you to know. And then he thinks. Perhaps Paul and Peter, as their eyes were opened to the hope of their calling and to the hope of the calling of the church, were being enlightened to glimpses of what King David was saying thousands of years earlier. In Psalm 23, my God prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. He honors me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. You cannot beat lack or envy in your life until you first learn how to receive abundance. You cannot be envy until you first learn to receive love. Because Paul doesn't say, be less envious. Paul says, love does not envy. What you and I need most today is to, not go, to go out into the Santa Barbara and try to not envy. What you and I need most is love. The love of God poured abroad into the hearts of thirsty men and women. That is what will enable you to cheer other people on because there's no sense of threat. Like they have more than me, whatever, that's awesome. There's no sense of disappointment because you're content. Paul says contentment is a means of godliness. And if you're able to cheer other people on, if there's no sense of threat, you can actually build other people up. You can meet people in their sense of lack. If you're full, you don't mind giving some of what you have away. I want to go back to our, uh, our friend Pete Best for a moment and write the follow-up from uh, the author Mark, Mark Manson, who's writing on a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. It's not a, not a believer, but a, even he spots the difference. I just want to read this. Uh, Goes on to write that in many ways, Pete Best ended up better off. In an interview in 1994, Best said, I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. What? You're silly, Peter. And I quote Mark, uh, not the gospel writer Mark, but uh, the author Mark. 
Despite being depressed and distraught by getting kicked out of the Beatles, as he grew older, he learned to reprioritize what he cared about and was able, to me- uh, was able to measure his life in a new light. Best explained that the circumstances of his getting kicked out of the Beatles ultimately led him to meet his wife and uh, have children, and all of a sudden his values changed, and he began to measure his life differently. Fame and glory would have been really nice, for sure. But he decided that what he already had was more important. Big loving family, stable marriage, a simple life. He even got to play drums, touring Europe and recording albums well into the 2000s that nobody here has ever heard about. So what was really lost? He goes on to say just a lot of attention and adulation. Whereas what was gained meant so much more to him. Mark goes on to write, because of this, Best grew into a happy and healthy old man with an easy life and a great family, things that, ironically, the four Beatles would spend decades struggling to achieve or maintain. I don't know if you resonate with any of this, but I certainly do. I have felt in many years past threatened by people in my life and surprised by how easily I resort to that attack mode. I'm thinking of one situation in particular uh, in which I was just jealous and envious and it just colored everything that I did. I found myself resenting these people. I couldn't relate to them in any possible way. When I was enabled to receive the unmerited grace and love of God, when that finally clicked for me, something changed in my perception of the other person. I was actually able to empathize with that person, see their side of things, understand, sympathize with them. Something that sounds maybe surfacy and silly to you, but for me, that was an impossible barrier. That was a supernatural change in my life. Found myself able to love again that person for the first time. Today we're we're friends again. And it's the working of God's power to release captives and set them free to love and to be loved. If any of this resonates with you, if there's some envy or a posture of lack that's driving you, discontentment that you want to be free from, free to love, free to delight, free to rest, and you're asking where to start, I just want to end. I want to ask Cody to come up with his team and end with his passage in First Peter chapter 2 where Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, right? Not like the Corinthians were, infants just staying put, but like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Listen to this. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I think all of us, this morning can start there, right? If you don't know where to start, maybe we can start by filling up where some of us lack the most. Tasting and seeing that the Lord has been good to you and me. Let's take a few moments today and just slow down. Listen to the words that are being sung. Sing them if that helps you as well. Get on the carpets. Uh, viscerally remind yourself through the, the, the sacrament of the, the bread and of the cup of how he has been good to you by sacrificing himself for you on the cross. 
getting prayer if, there's, uh, if that's what helps you, but whatever it is, slowing down to taste and see, God, I don't deserve it, but you have been good to me. Let our hard hearts start to melt. Do it, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.